You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. This is our sermon series, Sacred Habits, how practicing the way of Jesus helps you to flourish spiritually and stay grounded emotionally. Good morning. My name is Jarvis, and I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just prayed your word. We have sung your word. And we've heard your word read publicly. And now we come to the moment in this service where we hear the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would open up our hearts and awaken our souls through the proclamation of the living and breathing word of God. Father, we pray that as the word is preached, that you would protect us from the devil and his lies who would use your word as a means by which to attack us, we pray that your Spirit would use your Word as a means by which to edify us and to build us up as your people and to equip us for the work of the ministry and that your Word in this moment by your Spirit would point us to the exaltation and the glorification of Jesus Christ, your Son. Use the preaching of your Word to move us to be conformed more into the image of your Son. And Father, we pray for me, the preacher this morning, that you would protect me from the devil and his lies, that you would protect me from doing or saying anything that makes Jesus Christ look silly or weak. We pray that your word would be preached with power and that the Spirit of God would come right now and anoint the proclamation of your word and bring life today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our sermon series this morning on sacred habits of Jesus. Pastor Jason taught us last week that Jesus practiced and taught his disciples the sacred habit of prayer. Pastor Jason encouraged us to be intentional, to model Jesus' example, and to develop a sacred habit of prayer just as he. Pastor Jason made the important point that Jesus was never too busy to pray, and nor should we be? 
Today's sermon focuses on the sacred habit of creating space for the Spirit to speak to us through God's Word. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, in our text, Jesus defeats Satan, the adversary, the enemy, the great deceiver, with the authority of the Word of God, in the power of the Spirit, as He relies upon God's Word. If I can again bring together last Sunday's sermon and today's sermon, prayer and prioritizing God's Word are complementary sacred habits that Jesus practiced in His life and in His ministry. And that we too must practice if we desire to have victory over sin, over Satan, and over his lies in this world. This sermon is about the Word of God. It's not about the devil. And I want to say a few more words about the devil here because the devil shows up in the text. The devil is a liar. He's an adversary. He's our enemy. The Bible describes him as a roaring lion going to and fro on the earth seeking whom he may devour. The Bible describes him as a, as a serpent, as a dragon, as a beast. He seeks people to sift like wheat. The devil is messy. He's chaotic. He's violent. And he's a loudmouth. But he's also clean. He's smooth. He's subtle. He's soft-spoken. He shows up in the suburbs, on the block, in the classrooms at seminaries, universities. Shows up in the bedroom, at the dinner table, in the boardroom, at church, and at work. The basic takeaway that I want you to hear this morning from this sermon is Jesus proves that He is the Christ and the Son of God by defeating the devil in the power of the Spirit. As He relies upon the authority of God's Word. Or, as He practiced the sacred habit of prioritizing the Word of God. Now, let's walk through the text. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, after John the Baptist baptized Jesus, Matthew records that when Jesus came up from the water, the heavens were opened, the Spirit descended upon Him as a dove, and God announces that Jesus is God's beloved Son who pleases Him. This moment in Jesus' life 
and in his ministry is significant. Because it's the moment when God announces publicly that Jesus is the promised Messiah to whom the Old Testament points and to whom John the Baptist preaching witnesses in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. As God's beloved Son, Jesus has a unique relationship with God the Father as the eternal Son, the perfect Son. Unlike Israel, who was also called God's Son in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus is unique. Because God says in chapter 3, verse 17, that He is well pleased by Him. Jesus, as the beloved Son, perfectly obeys the Father. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Matthew then demonstrates Jesus' uniqueness and his superiority over Israel by recording this story where he is victorious over Satan in the wilderness. As he prioritizes God's word, as he obeys God's word in the face of the devil's temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Matthew states that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. God's role in Jesus' temptation is clear from the text by the fact that the Spirit who leads Jesus to be tempted is called the Spirit of God in chapter 3, verse 16. The Spirit who anoints Jesus as Messiah at his baptism and God who announces that Jesus is God's Son at his baptism led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a very important theological point here. It's true that God plays a role in Jesus' temptation, but the devil is the agent whom God uses to tempt Jesus so that neither God nor the Spirit tempts Jesus to sin, but the devil tempts Jesus to sin. Satan's plan in the temptation was to tempt Jesus to sin against God, to disobey God's word. That was Satan's plan. God's plan in the temptation was to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, by his refusal to disobey God. Instead, to disobey the devil and obey God and his word. The devil tempts Jesus in three stages, and these are my three points. Number one, he commands Jesus to use his power to convert the stones into bread in verse three. This is a significant temptation because Matthew states in verse two that Jesus was hungry after he fasted 40 days. And 40 nights. I have to eat six times a day or my blood sugar drops. I can't go 15 minutes without being hungry. 
and having something to eat. The devil shows up at the weakest moment in Jesus' life at this point in his ministry, where he's physically hungry after going without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Second, Satan tempts Jesus to test God in verse 6. And then third, Satan tempts Jesus to worship him in verse 10. Jesus responds to each temptation by prioritizing God's word, by appealing to God's word, and specifically to texts from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 13. First, Jesus' appeal to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The devil comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord rehearses his gracious dealings with Israel throughout the nation's wilderness journey. In Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 and 2, the Lord commands Israel to obey him so that they would live and possess the promised land. In verse 2, he reminds them of the things that he did to Israel to test them, to know what was in their hearts and to know whether they would keep his commandments. In Deuteronomy 8.3, the Lord begins to recount his tests of Israel, one of which was he let Israel go hungry only to provide food for God, his people. God pronounced or God provided this manna, this bread for Israel, not man. This was, this was heavenly bread, right? It was bread that God provided. And the Lord's provision of this manna for Israel served as a reminder that, that he would keep his word to fulfill his promises to his people. Promises that he gave to Abraham in Genesis. When the devil shows up in Matthew chapter 4, he attempts to persuade Jesus to doubt God's word and to doubt God's faithfulness to provide for him. And the devil sought to compel Jesus to trust in his own ability as God's son rather than trusting in God's promises and provisions for him as God's beloved son in whom God was well pleased. But what does Jesus do? What is his response? Instead of listening to the devil, Jesus cites Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I want to read that verse to you from Deuteronomy, the whole verse. And then I want to highlight the words Jesus cites. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says, and, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the lord jesus responds to satan in matthew 4 verse 4 with these words 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That, that concept of living or life is an important concept in the book of Deuteronomy. As you know, in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells Israel again and again, if you obey me in the land, you will live long in the land. You'll have life. If you disobey me in the land, you will, you will die. You'll be expelled from the land. Jesus' point in citing this verse is to communicate to the devil and to us that no one receives God's favor or God's blessing by receiving God's material blessings. In this case, the blessing of bread. No one lives by bread alone. No one has life. No one has God's favor by, by receiving God's material gifts. But one receives life, Jesus says, by believing in, trusting in, relying upon God's very own word. But the devil is creative, isn't he? He's much more creative than any of us. He begins to use the scriptures against Jesus. In Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, the devil cites some verses to seek to persuade Jesus to disobey the word of God. The devil tempts Jesus to put God to the test in verse 6. The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, probably in some sort of visionary experience, and he took him to the highest point of the temple. Then he tempted Jesus there in verse 6 by saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Notice his creativity. The first creative thing he does is he questions the very thing that God has already said is true in Matthew chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. At the baptism of Jesus, God announces that Jesus is his beloved son, right? The devil shows up, and he, in a very creative way, a smooth way, he says, if you are the son of God, this is what you should do to prove that to me. And then the second creative thing he does is he quotes scripture. He cites Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 as scriptural support as to why Jesus should obey his command instead of God's command. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6 says this. The devil says to Jesus, God will command his angels concerning you, and they will take you in their hand. Otherwise, you should strike your foot against the stone. These verses, brothers and sisters, do not actually support the devil's argument. Instead, they support Jesus' previous assertion in verse 4 that man should trust in God's word and in God's faithfulness and not live by bread alone. Because Psalm 91 emphasizes in its context that those who trust in the Lord, they have security, they have safety. They have protection. 
The reason Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 state the the ones who trust in the Lord would not be stricken against a stone is because the Lord himself will deliver them from his judgment if they trust him, if they obey him. Psalm 91 teaches the Lord will deliver those who trust him from physical harm. The Lord will protect those who follow him, who who rely upon him. He does not promise any one of us He'll save us from death if we jump off the building of this church. He promises us deliverance. Psalm Psalm 91 says, if we trust in him. If Jesus would have thrown himself off the temple in obedience to the devil's terrible sermon on Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, to see if God would protect him from death, then Jesus would have done the opposite of what Psalm 91 actually says. He would have put the Lord to the test to see if his word is true. And he would have contradicted his previous remarks to the devil about living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not living by every word that comes from the mouth of the devil living by God's word. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. I love Jesus' response to the devil. He doesn't play games here. He says in verse 7, you will not test your God, the Lord. Jesus reminds the devil and us of the importance of obeying God's word. Instead of obeying the devil's misuse of God's word. And brothers and sisters, the only way we can obey God's word and imitate Jesus' actions here is to prayerfully read God's word for ourselves and to listen to God's word and to respond to God's word by the power of the spirit and to trust the word to be a means by which the Spirit uses to restore our broken, beat-up souls. Because when the devil comes after you, he will come at you with the Word. And if you don't have a regular intake in your life, in your souls, in your spiritual bones, of the living and breathing Word of God, you have no spiritual power that the Spirit will use as a means by which for you to resist the devil and his lies. In verse 7, Jesus cites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. In its Old Testament context, this verse occurs after the Lord tells Israel through Moses that they must obey his commands and worship the Lord alone when they enter into the promised land. Otherwise, the Lord's anger would be kindled against them, and the Lord would destroy them from the face of the earth. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 15. Then in verse 16, the Lord says, Israel must not put the Lord to the test. And in verse 17, that they should keep his commands. 
This test served to prove the Lord would do what he promised to do to his people, namely judge Israel if they disobeyed him in the land. Jesus cites this verse from Deuteronomy to refute the devil's interpretation of Psalm 91, that the Lord would preserve him from harm if he disobeyed God's word. Satan's temptation of Jesus with this verse sought to persuade Jesus to be unfaithful to the Lord. I want you to hear that. The devil was using the Bible to persuade the Son of God to be unfaithful to God's word. But Jesus' response demonstrates that he faithfully relies upon God's word and trusts God's word. Third, and finally, the devil tempts Jesus to worship him in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. According to these verses, Satan showed Jesus numerous kingdoms of the world, and he promises to give them to him and all of their power. Think about this for a moment. He has the audacity to tell the eternal Son of God, if you worship me, here's what I will give to you. When in fact, the Son of God already owns the kingdoms that the devil says he'll give to him. Jesus responds by strongly rebuking the devil with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 and 14, these verses teach that Israel should only worship God and only serve him. With this final temptation, Jesus' temptation cycle comes to an end, and it really comes to a climax. With this temptation, we see what the devil was up to all along. He wanted Jesus to worship him. He wanted the eternal son of God who pleases the father to bow his allegiance to him, the devil, the dragon, the serpent, whom the son of God crushes in the cross and the resurrection. God's statement in chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus is God's beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased, is confirmed by his response to the devil in Matthew chapter 4. And I love what Matthew does in chapter 4, verse 11. He gives us a, a very brief but powerful editorial statement. If you remember in chapter 4, Verse 10, when the devil tempts Jesus to worship him, Jesus said, basically, get away from me, devil. Be gone, devil, or depart, devil. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, listen to what Matthew says the devil does. Then the devil left him. I love that verse. Now, he doesn't leave him forever. In fact, he shows up in his ministry as he has to cast out demons. The devil shows up at funerals. The devil shows up in the cross as Judas hands him over and the Romans and the Gentiles and and other Jews 
execute the Son of God. But the devil is shamed once again at the resurrection, isn't he? I think he's also shamed at the cross as well. And then Matthew says at the end of verse 11, angels came and were ministering to him, were caring for him and meeting his needs. James puts it this way in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Now, four brief applications. Number one, brothers and sisters, read the Word of God. Read it for yourselves, prayerfully, in the power of the Spirit. And we're all different, aren't we? We all have different schedules. We're all busy. I don't think there's one way to go about Bible study or Bible reading. But my exhortation is, read it. Be intentional to read it. And read it prayerfully, thoughtfully. Devotionally. I'll give you an example of how I do this. I am not, by the way, just hear this, I'm not presenting myself as the example. I hate using myself in illustrations because it could come across the wrong way. I'm not giving myself as the example. I'm giving you an example of what I do when I apply the very point I'm making here. So this week, last week, I thought a lot about Matthew chapter 4 in preparation for this sermon. And my devotional every day, all week, And even this morning was Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And as I was reading that text, I was praying that text. I would pray things like, Jesus, help me to resist the devil and his lies with the word. Holy Spirit, help me to believe that your word gives me everything I need for eternal life and godliness. Holy Spirit, help me to love and cherish your word. Not just in my mind, but in my heart. Help me to use the word as a means by which to fight against the devil and his lies. Help me to use the word by your spirit as a means by which I fight against sin. Father, unleash the word in my heart and through my life so that I can have victory over the devil and over my sin. Read the Word of God. Be intentional to read it. Create some kind of plan that is, in, that is consistent with your rhythm. Carve out time to devote your mind and your soul to reading Scripture. And don't just read it for more information to impress people with that community group. We're at the Bible study. I teach the Bible for a living at a seminary. And if I only read the Bible when I teach it, my soul will die. And knowledge without the Spirit, what that does is create arrogance and pride. It doesn't create life. But as you prayerfully read the Word of God and let the Word of God sit with you and you sit with it and you talk to it as it talks to you, The Lord will use His Word as a means by which to conform you more into the image of King Jesus. 
So the first application is just read the word. Prayerfully, thoughtfully, devotionally. Second application. I want to say a word here about the pulpit ministry here at Midtown and the centrality of the word in the pulpit. I ran this by Pastor Jamal before I put this in my sermon, so I got his permission to say this. Uh, so I'm not trying to act like I'm the lead pastor because I'm not. Thank God. I'm, I'm only a, a non-staff pastor. Thank God for my lead pastor. But thank God that he's the lead pastor. At Midtown, your pastors believe in the centrality of the Word of God in preaching in this church. Most of the time, we demonstrate this by preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. When we preach as pastors, we do not desire our sermons to be viewed as entertainment, performances, or boring academic lectures. We have no interest in being cool, hip, keeping up with fads, or settling scores with people from the pulpit. And we have no interest in fighting in anybody's culture wars from this pulpit. Instead, we desire when we preach and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God to build this church up and to equip you all for the work of the ministry through the preaching of the Word. We desire as pastors to do good old-fashioned Bible preaching and teaching that is accessible, clear, relevant, and practical for the lives of those in this church who watch our lives and who listen to our sermons. Of course, we fall short. The Word of God is authoritative. Your preachers are not. We have the desire to be faithful to the Word of God. Sometimes we, we misinterpret Scripture. The problem is we don't know when we do. That's why you need to read the Word for yourselves and lovingly and respectfully, appropriately, correct us when we are wrong. But at least come to us with Bibles. <laughs> Open. So we can have a conversation about the Word. Let's say another word here. Others outside of Midtown may listen to our sermons and benefit them. And I pray that they do benefit from them. But we don't preach to them. We preach to you. And notice how I frame that. We do not preach for you. We preach to you. And we preach to ourselves. We are not entertainers who walk out from behind of a curtain and perform for you. That's not what we do in this pulpit when we preach. It is our responsibility before God to break open the Word of God and to bring the full force of the Word of God by the power of the Spirit to bear on this congregation 
for the purpose of conforming you and ourselves more and more into the image of King Jesus. That's what we want when we preach. So, let me encourage you to embrace the importance of sitting regularly under biblical preaching in this church. And let me encourage you to sit under the public reading of Scripture regularly in this church. And may I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you to this church. Now, let me back up for a moment and say, okay, if you look at the overhead, that's fine. If you have the Bible on your phone, that's okay. But train yourself, here's the point, to actively listen to the preaching of the Word of God. To take notes when you're listening and to train your mind to to listen to sermons well. We must work hard to preach and you must work hard to listen. And the power of the Spirit as you rely upon the Spirit to help you. Take seriously the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching of God's Word in the context of the local church, in the context of the corporate worship experience, is more important for our spiritual life than any Christian conference that you'll ever go to. It's more important than any blog that you'll read or podcast that you listen to. Now, of course, conferences are good. Blogs, some of them are good, maybe. (laughs) Sometimes. Podcasts can be helpful. But there is nothing like sitting together with fellow members at this church with whom you have locked arms in covenant community, singing the Word of God together, listening to the Word of God preach together, pray together, listening to the Word of God pray together and read together, and listening to the Word of God preached together as a church. You must train yourself to value that. You must train yourself if you have to miss a Sunday, and we all do, get sick, COVID's here, right? Train yourself to watch it on YouTube and to listen to what was preached here, the church of which you're part. There's so much more I could say here, but in danger of preaching another sermon, let me stop. Number three, application. Let's commit ourselves afresh in this new year to the authority of God's Word over our lives and to its ability to give us everything we need for eternal life and godliness. Now, I want to clarify that because that statement will hit some of you in the wrong way. Praise God for common sense and for common grace. When I'm sick, I go to the doctor. When I'm sick, I don't just read my Bible. When I'm sick, I eventually take take medicine. I don't always do it when I'm supposed to, but eventually I'll work my way around to taking the medicine so I can get better. This morning when I came to church, I came here in a car. I wasn't sitting on my Bible coasting downtown to get to Midtown. 
I use common grace, right? Thank God for people with brains to create cars so I can drive to church. My point is this. That the Word of God gives you and me everything we need to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Everything for eternal life and godliness. Now that does not mean, hear this carefully too, here's another clarifying point. I've got to be careful because if I keep clarifying, I'm going to minimize the power of the point, right? But here's another clarifying point. I'm not saying if you just read the Bible, all your problems are going to go away. I remember several years ago, about 14 years ago in fact, I heard a great sermon on not worrying. I went home and had an anxiety attack. True story. I'm not saying things just magically get better as you read the Bible. I'm not saying your life is all of a sudden just fixed if you read the Bible. Here's my point. It's a much more powerful point than that. The point is a regular rhythm of intaking the Word of God in time produces spiritual life in your life. I can't explain it. I look at my own life. I've been a Christian for 25 years. And in time, there have been moments in my life on a Sunday morning, I've come to church wondering if this Jesus thing is worth it. And I heard my pastor preach the Word of God. And God used the preaching of the word to remind me and the people of God who sing that word to remind me in the spirit to keep holding on to the gospel. And a regular intake of reading the word, listening to the word, training your mind to think about the word will give you spiritual resources from which to draw to persevere in your faith until the end and experience spiritual formation. And that's why we have the word. It's not so we can get intellectually fat. We have the Bible for spiritual formation. So may God help us value that individually and as a church, finally. There's an evangelistic word here for those of you who are not Christians. The invitation for you is is to trust in the Lord's word and turn from your sin And give your lives to Jesus Christ. The Word of God says that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and God raised Him from the dead. And if you give your life to Christ by faith, turn from your sin, you can have eternal life and begin walking in the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. So brothers and sisters, in 2022... May we ask the Spirit to help us make a renewed commitment to the centrality of God's Word as a regular sacred habit in our lives, as we walk with Jesus, as we pray without ceasing. Ask the Spirit to help us create regular space in our lives for the sacred habit of hearing God's Spirit speak to us through His Word. And if we do that, I believe by faith that the Spirit will use God's Word in time as a means by which to slowly transform our lives and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. 
as individual Christians and as a church. And this conformity will help us fulfill our vision to fill up our city with gritty disciple makers. As we continue to reach people with the gospel, build them up as the church, and send them into the world in the power of the Spirit and in the authority of God's Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would do this in us by your spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship team is coming forward, I want to say a word about the Lord's Supper. Each Lord's Day at Midtown, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this meal is for saved sinners. If you are perfect today, this meal is not for you. It's for sinners who've given their lives to Jesus Christ by faith and who are faithfully following him. So I invite you this morning, we invite you this morning to join this meal with us. If you're not a Christian, this meal is not for you. We would love for you to meet with us after the service in the connect room about what it would mean for you to partake of this meal. But if you're not following Jesus today, this meal is not for you. By your seat, you have a cup of juice and a wafer. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he shared bread, broke bread with his disciples and gave it to them and said, this bread represents my broken body. Do this in remembrance of me, take and eat. In the same way, he shared a cup of wine with his disciples and said, this wine represents the blood of the new covenant, my blood, which will be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.